Our next newcomer's orientation, four-week class, uh, where I talk about our church and what we believe and what our philosophy is and where we came from and where we hope to go in the future. Newcomer's orientation is for, as the name suggests, those who are new to our church who would like to know more about it. So I go through a booklet of material with you for four Sundays during this hour. That starts uh, three weeks from today. So October 21... Uh, those of you who want to get that information for those four weeks will be with me in a different part of the building, and I will go through that material uh, with that small group. And then we will have uh, others teaching in here. The rest of the group, Pastor Matt, will be going through a class in another part, the new members class. That's for folks who have joined most recently and to get you fully acclimated to the life of the church. So Pastor Matt will be doing new members. I'll be doing newcomers. But they both start three weeks from today, October 21. So those of you who fit in that newcomers category, just mark that down. We would love to have you as part of that. If you have any questions about it, see me between now and then. All right, we are continuing our series that has just three Sundays left, today and two more Sundays, uh, called Centering on Ministry. If you have not been able to be here for the past sessions, all of our uh, sermons and uh, Discovering God classes during this hour are recorded, and they are on our website under the Media tab. So you can listen to those to catch up if you, if you care to. But we've been going through this series for several weeks, actually since the end of July, July 22, on centering on ministry. And the idea is this, that as you know, God has blessed us with a building finally after 11, actually 12 years, even a year before we started, searching for a place that would be our permanent home. On May the 10th of this year, we closed on an elementary school, closed elementary school that we purchased. So we've owned it since that time. We've been working with the city to get approvals, to get the renovations done. We've got all those approvals. The renovations started first week of uh, this month, and they are uh, going apace. So as soon as we can get a a CFO, a certificate of occupancy uh, from the city, then we will have our first service there. We don't know if that's the end of this year or early next year. Uh, We don't know, but we're moving as fast as we can with that. But in the meanwhile, I wanted to spend some time preparing us for that. We call that building our ministry center. And we use that terminology in order to uh, keep in our minds, in the forefront of our minds, that the church is God's people, carrying out God's work, and the building is just that, a building. And the building is not the church, but it is a great resource to help us carry out that work. And so we're very delighted to have it. But we want to maintain that it is just a resource. We call it ministry center because we think that signifies what it actually does. It's a center, a place where ministry occurs within its four walls, but also a training center for ministry to take place outside of its four walls. This series then is titled Centering on Ministry, Play on Words, as we prepare to move into our ministry center. We want to focus our minds on uh, moving in and hitting the ground running and not have any unnecessary obstacles keep us from being most effective when we do that. So we've gone through a number of categories of things we need to focus our attention on. And the last one that we've been focusing on for these last few weeks and will now today and the next two Sundays is this. Uh, Centering on ministry as we prepare ourselves evangelistically. We're preparing ourselves to go into our ministry center to be as effective as possible evangelistically. That is, reaching people with the, with the gospel, seeing them come to Jesus and grow in Him. Now, we've looked at a number of things related to being effective. 
in that way. But one of them is for us to know our audience. If we're going to be effective in reaching people in this new place, we need to know our audience. Now, the first and most important audience for everything we do, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, is God himself. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy, before uh, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I give you this solemn charge to preach the word. So as you minister, Timothy, as you preach and as you teach, remember this, that above all, you're doing that in the presence of God, before God. And that will temper the way we go about what we do if we're always mindful of the fact that God is our ultimate audience. That will keep us from being a man-centered ministry. And many, many churches today have forgotten that. That ministry is not first about people. It's first about God, then people. And we must please God in the way we minister to people. And that affects the choices you make and the way you go about things. So we need to remember, God is the ultimate audience. But then there is, of course, the human audience, that God is using us as his instruments to, to reach. And we need to know that audience, and we need to know about them at least a couple of things. One is what do they need? And I said a few weeks ago that when I say what do they need, not just what they think they need, but what they really need, and we define some of what, what that is. It certainly is centered on truth. It is centered on the gospel. It, is, it requires relationships with authentic people who genuinely love them and in the context of those loving, redemptive relationships are able to give the, the gospel and the truth. So in order to know your audience and the people that are that audience, we need to know what they need, but also we need to know how they perceive us. If we're going to be effective, we need to know as much as we can about, you know, what do they know about us? How much of that's accurate and how much of it's not? And I'm making the case, I believe this wholeheartedly. Uh, I believe that if people have an accurate picture of who we are, that an accurate picture of who God's church is is a very attractive thing. But it needs to be accurate. And if it's distorted, it can be a very unattractive thing. And I am convinced that much of what people think about churches like ours is incorrect. So we need to know what that is and then go out of our way to correct those distortions of their perception. So I've given examples. You know, they perceive we're all about money. We want their money, right? Isn't that what people think about Christians, what they think about pastors, what they, you know, that's one of their, well, that's wrong. I mean, you know, I, I trust it's wrong. I trust you know it's wrong. It is incorrect, but people think it. So we need to do things to make sure that we counteract that false perception. All right, so last week, we talked about the fact that in the proper sense of this term, we are a fundamentalist church. Now, I say in the proper sense of that term. I even have to qualify it really quickly, right? Because I'm afraid people, like, run out the door as soon as they hear it. No, as we saw last week... That term started about 100 years ago, came into, was coined in 1920, the year 1920. And it was, at the time it was coined, it represented something very good. It represented people who were committed to the truth of the Bible. And they were so committed to the truth of the Bible that they were willing to lose some things. They were willing to give some things up. 
and do battle in an appropriate sense for truths, core doctrines, cardinal doctrines of Christianity that are taught in the Bible but were being denied by many in seminaries and colleges and denominationally. And I gave some examples of that last week. Remember the JEDP theory? You know that, that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, even though Jesus says he did. But liberals, theological liberals, that is, said, no, that's not what happened, because we now know that, that religion, like everything else, has evolved. Thank you, Charles Darwin. And because of that, we're having to change our perspective on who wrote these books, how they came into being, and if evolution is true, then what the Bible says about this cannot be true. That the religion of Yahweh, the religion of the Old Testament, cannot have come about the way Genesis says it did. Therefore, we need to change this. And they did. Moses could not have written this. Who did? J, E, D, and P did. Why are there letters to identify them? Because nobody knows who they are. And so there's the Jehovah writer, the Elohim writer, the Deuteronomist, and the priestly writer. And that's the theory. It denies the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Other doctrines then were denied. The virgin birth, most of all the miracles, the resurrection of Jesus, were being denied by those who previously had believed them. So just as an example, Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton Seminary uh, is a seminary of the Presbyterian Church USA. But professors at Princeton, like many others, had begun to adopt these sorts of theories, deny cardinal doctrines of the faith. And so fundamentalists said, we can't abide that. You either change this Either the faculty stops teaching this or we must resign and separate ourselves from this. And there were people who did so. And they started, in that case, another seminary, Westminster Seminary, uh, in, in Philadelphia. And one of the men who did that was a fellow named J. Gresham Machen. Machen was a Presbyterian, but a, a fundamentalist in the finest sense of the term. He also helped found another Presbyterian denomination. Because if the Presbyterian Church USA is going to tolerate this, then I can't tolerate the Presbyterian Church USA. So he helped found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, Orthodox, why did they choose that name? Because those dudes aren't. They're unorthodox. We believe in Orthodox Christianity, and we're going to stand for that, and so the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And there were a number of groups that started out of that. In this case, just an example from the Presbyterians, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, eventually the Bible Presbyterian Church. But all of them believing these orthodox doctrines and separating themselves from the mainline Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. That mainline denomination has been dwindling, as have most of the mainline liberal denominations, for the last 50 years, thankfully, because it long ago abandoned biblical orthodoxy. So fundamentalist was a term that represented people who did that, people who were willing to take a stand on these core truths of Christianity, even if it meant we had to separate ourselves and start our own, start our own institutions, even our own denominations. 
That same time, you had a challenge to the Bible's teaching on creation uh, in Dayton, Tennessee. I mentioned that last week, the Scopes, so-called Scopes Monkey Trial. And that didn't help the fundamentalist cause a whole lot. The portrayal in the media of fundamentalists was what they were backwoods ignoramuses. And so here's what happened. Fundamentalists reacted to all of this. Being burned by the denominations, being burned by the media with a, what I will call a fierce independence, even an extreme independence. We don't need those denominations. We don't need the media. We'll go start our own stuff, and it'll just be ours. And I'm going to give examples of this fierce independence. Now, I say I want to qualify the independence with some adjective, fierce or extreme, for this reason. The idea that churches are to be independent, I'm convinced, is fully biblical. And I want to show you just an example of why I believe that. I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, you have instructions being given to a church, church at Corinth, about a heinous sin situation going on in their midst. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, so an incestuous relationship. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Wow, what a, what a situation. Now, I don't want to get in, I don't have time, and it's not my purpose to get into the particulars of that particular situation, other than to say this. Paul, who wrote this to this church, says... You ought to have already taken action about this. You as a church body ought to have already done something about this. Now notice this. You don't go to a denominational headquarters to say, is it okay if we do this? Who's supposed to do this? The church is. Why is that? Because the church is its own entity. The local church is an autonomous, that is, self-governing body. Each local church is that. So this idea of independence is what the Bible teaches, I'm convinced, about local assemblies, that they don't have structures above them that dictate what they do. They are to carry out their own affairs. That is known as the autonomy of the local church. And it is something that we believe in. All Baptist churches, all Baptist churches are technically independent. Now, notice I say technically. (laughs) Some band together in uh, conventions, Southern Baptist Convention. But even with that, that's a voluntary association. It's not a denomination. There are fellowships and associations, but each church governs its its own affairs. And that has biblical precedent uh, to it because each local church is autonomous, self-governing. So independence is fine. It's biblical. 
autonomy, self-governing congregation governs its own affairs. But what developed was what I call a fierce independence. Many Baptists, I've already mentioned our Presbyterian friends, many Baptists left uh, things like the Southern Baptist Convention. And this may come as a surprise, but for decades and decades, the Southern Baptist Convention bought into the liberalism that Princeton had bought into. That's a fact. I'm not making that up. That is a fact. It wasn't until the late 70s that there was a conservative resurgence within the Southern Baptist Convention. And the, the fundamentalists within the SBC took over and began to elect to the convention machinery people who believe the Bible. Thankfully, they've done that. You've got people like Al Mohler. Some of you know that name president of the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention, Southern Seminary in Louisville. He is a staunch Bible believer. He, when he became the president, he fired the liberals, and all God's people said. I mean, so that, and, he cleaned, and he cleaned house, right? But for decades and decades, that was not, that was not the case. So I'll just tell you a quick story. Our, our parent church, Huron Baptist in Flat Rock, the church at which uh, my wife and I were for 16 years. I was on staff for the last nine, and they planted this church. That church in the early 80s, when Pastor Steve Thomas, still the pastor there, when he first came, that church was a Southern Baptist church. And Steve knows all this history, of course, that I'm telling you. And the church had dwindled down to just a handful of families. There were a couple of poor deacons there. They didn't have a pastor. They didn't know where to get a pastor. They called the convention. The convention didn't care about this little church, frankly. They hadn't sent any money to the convention in years. They were just going to let it close up. They heard that there's a seminary in Allen Park. They called the seminary. They said, you got anybody who can just come and preach? So they made an announcement in chapel. Steve was a student at the time. And he said, yeah, I'll go down there and preach. He went down there just to preach. And as he preached, they loved his preaching. He didn't have any intention of becoming their pastor, but over time, they said, what would it take for you to consider? And he said, you know, I think you need to get out of the Southern Baptist Convention. They go, really? We, t tell us. So he did. And they decided that they would have the state representative, Michigan state representative from the SBC come in. This is 1983. They had the state representative come in. I was not there. I was told this story by the two deacons that were there and Pastor Thomas. State rep comes in. Steve says, we, I want these guys to understand what it is you believe. He said, so let me ask you directly. Is the Bible without error? And the guy danced. And then Steve said, okay, is the Bible without error though? And he danced. And finally, he couldn't dance anymore. And he put his hand on the Bible and in a pious way said, Men, this book is completely reliable. Well, reliable is not the same as inerrant, is it? He couldn't bring himself to say the Bible's without error. Could not. And that church voted to remove itself at that time from the, the SBC. Now, that was just when this conservative resurgence was happening, and they may not do that today, but that was the deal back then. And I'm simply telling you that that kind of thing was going on 150 years ago. It was happening up through the, the 60s and the 70s and the, and the early 80s, and a fierce independence developed among many 
fundamentalists, Bible believers who are willing to take a stand. Now, how does that affect us and how people perceive us? I, w- I want to get to that, but just kind of hang with me. So because many of these Bible-believing folk had been burned by denominations and by the educational institutions of those denominations, many of them began to start their own institutions. 1923, uh, evangelist Bob Jones Sr. started Bob Jones College. In all humility, calling it Bob Jones College, but that aside. Um, But Bob Jones College in Panama City, Florida for a brief time. Then they moved to Cleveland, Tennessee. And then I believe it was in the 40s that they moved to the current location in Greenville, South Carolina. Now Bob Jones University. Now, I'm going to say a few things about uh, just the independent college movement. uh, And some of it is negative because my perception is that there is some negative stuff to be understood. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily unkind. Some of you have, uh, some of you have graduated from Bob Jones. Um, and so, I'm, as I say, I'm not trying to be unnecessarily unkind. But I'll be unkind, just not unnecessarily unkind, okay? I mean, unfortunately, one of the legacies of, of Bob Jones over these many decades has been a few things. One is a legalistic approach to sanctification. Just, I'm just saying, okay? A legalistic, a rules-oriented pro- approach to sanctification. Uh, a, a fierce independence, not just from denominational structures, but from government oversight. So much so that uh, our friend Bob... Bob Jones, senior now, now gone. But uh, he was from the South, and he carried with him many of the cultural attitudes of the South, even into his Christianity, including his approach toward people of color. And I don't, I don't know if folks know this, but there's not only the legalistic, uh, the legalistic uh, heritage, but there's a racist heritage as well. And I'm just, I'm calling it that because I'm convinced that's what it is. Now, why would you say that? Well, here's why. Uh, Bob Jones was an evangelist, a Methodist evangelist, by the way. I want to keep the Baptists away from him. But he was a Methodist. But a fundamentalist Methodist. Like there were fundamentalist Presbyterians and fundamentalist Baptists. But uh, his evangelistic campaigns uh, were sometimes financed, again, not making this up, by the Ku Klux Klan. Up until recent years, there was a dormitory on the campus of Bob Jones University called Bib Graves Auditorium. They've since changed the name. Who is Bib Graves? He was a grand dragon in the Ku Klux Klan and a former governor of Alabama and friend of Bob Jones, senior. Uh, until 1970, 1970, African Americans were not allowed admittance into uh, Bob Jones University. The government had been after them for, for years. 1970, they began to allow admission, but had a rule against interracial dating. 
And when people enter the college, they had to declare their race so that we could keep them separate. And, uh, and some people didn't know what they were, you know, people are mixed race, you know, what do I do? And again, it's the last time I'll say I'm not making this up. Just trust me. So admissions advisors would have to look at somebody and say, okay, this is what you are, just based on their complexion. But you had to be registered. Interracial dating was outlawed. The government said you will lose your tax exemption if you continue with this interracial dating policy. They fought it. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1983, the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones University. United States against Bob Jones. And they lost their tax exemption. Uh, they actually wore that as a bit of a badge of honor. Who needs a government to tell us what to do? We're fighting the good fight. And they maintained the ban on interracial dating. Started to get some really bad press about that when, in the year 2000, an election year, um, candidate George W. Bush spoke at Bob Jones in their auditorium and it made the news that this is a racist school. Bob Jones III, grandson of Bob Jones Sr., appeared on Larry King, year 2000. He made an announcement on the Larry King show. We are ending the ban on interracial dating. So 12 years ago, the ban on interracial dating was rescinded. But up until that time, that's the way it went. So when I make the racism charge, I don't do that quickly. I don't do that loosely. I'm just telling you, that's the deal. And it's not just Bob Jones. Many churches, especially those that, and institutions that had their roots in the South, many of whom had migrated north, as my parents did, in the 60s for jobs, brought their racist attitudes with them. Um... As an example, my wife and I were married in 1985 at what was then called Temple Baptist Church in Redford. But Temple Baptist Church did not start in Redford. It started in Detroit. Uh, it started on 14th and Marquette. It was huge. It moved to a larger facility on Grand River in Detroit. Huge, beautiful building which is now a federal building owned by the... That's how, ni that's how big and nice this thing is. Why'd they move, do you think, in 1968? To Redford. Because of the riots. It was a racial thing. They built a beautiful building. Some of you know where that is. It's now called Detroit World Outreach at the corner of Telegraph and West Chicago. Uh, in, uh, in the mid-'80s... Temple got uh, a new pastor, a fellow named Truman Dollar, who began to take on this, uh, the racism in the church because the church had never admitted a, an African-American member. It wasn't until the mid-'80s that they admitted their first black members. Truman Dollar caught it from a number of people in the church for that. But nevertheless, the church felt the need to move. Now, we were at the church for one year. Happened to be the year we got married. Uh, I sat in the auditorium during those years. It was an auditorium that sat about 4,500 people. And it would be, at best, two-thirds filled. 
So it was not as though we needed to move because we're running out of space here. But they bought property, built, ultimately built a huge building, and what was Temple Baptist Church is now Northridge Church at North Territorial and Ridge Roads. So that's just Baptists coming north, bringing their stuff, and doing their thing. Uh, that church was started by a guy named J. Frank Norris. Temple Baptist started by J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris was one of these high-powered, fundamentalist, Baptist crazy guys. He, pa- he pastored two churches simultaneously, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and the other one in Detroit, Michigan. Took the train back and forth. One of the things that J. Frank Norris is famous for, infamous for, is shooting a guy with a gun in his office. The guy didn't like something Norris said in a sermon, came to confront him in his office, and Norris shot him. Now, I've considered it. I pack heat at the deacon's meetings. As the founder, the church had uh, four pastors prior to Brad Powell. Four. And J. Frank Norris, Norris was the first. I could give you anecdote after anecdote after anecdote of some of the craziness. The legalism, the racism, the craziness. But let me try to over the next couple of weeks, bring it together for you so that you can see why I am concerned about how we are perceived. Uh, And let me tell you this story that happened to me. When I was in ninth grade, and I graduated from inner city Baptist school, and uh, some of you have kids there, some of you are familiar with that. So I'm at a Christian school. And I started the year before in eighth grade. Ninth grade, I found myself as a Pentecostal kid at this Baptist school, sitting in a study hall toward the end of the ninth, my ninth grade year with a gal sitting next to me who was a senior. She was graduating in just a couple weeks. Now, I'm the ninth grader, and she's a senior. And I think the only reason she was in that study hall for that week or a few days is because her year as a senior had already ended early. And she had to drive her younger sisters back and forth, so she was killing time in a study hall. Anyway, her name was Tommy Sue Anderson. And so I say to her, well, you're graduating. What are you going to do? Do you know where you're going to go to college? And she says, yes, I'm going to a college in Indiana called Hiles Anderson College. And I go, I never heard of it. I'm a Pentecostal kid, ninth grade. And I quip. You got a college named after you. Her last name's Anderson. She's going to Hiles Anderson. And she doesn't laugh. And she says, yeah, my dad's Anderson. And I'm trying to process this. I'm going, your, your dad, like, owns a college? Now, this gal would drive, her, uh, would drive her younger sisters into Allen Park from Ypsilanti. Family lived in Ypsilanti. And she did come in in a Cadillac every day. I knew that. I knew nothing about the family. So she starts to tell me that her father, Russell Anderson, is a multimillionaire. And he 
financed the founding and the construction of Hiles Anderson College in Crown Point, Indiana. And it is half-named after her dad, Anderson. Well, this is my first introduction ever in my life to a place called Hiles Anderson. And um, I want to tell you over the next week or so some of the stuff that has come out of Hiles Anderson Baptist College. And the reason I want to tell you that is because they have spawned hundreds and hundreds of pastors, some in our area, who believe and do crazy things, and they are all Baptists. And it affects, I believe, how we are perceived, that we have people like that out there. Now, what is it about Hiles Anderson College? Well, the Hiles in Hiles Anderson College is a guy named Jack Hiles. And Jack Hiles became the pastor of the church, I think, in 1956, I think, but a long time ago. He's dead now. He died in 2001. So he was the pastor of the church for decades. And let me just describe for you Pastor Jack Hiles of Hiles First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, and Hiles Anderson College in Crown Point. Jack Hiles was infamous for saying things like, I am not a dictator. I'm the only tater. Authoritarian, independent, and the pastor runs the show. And when I say runs the show, I mean runs your life. You don't make a decision without the pastor approving it. You don't get married unless the pastor approves the person you're getting married to. If you do that, you risk being outside the will of God. And it was hammered home to people and hammered home to people. Do not question the authority of the pastor. You know, it's not so bad after all. Actually, the more I think about it. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. But, but for decades, hammered home and hammered home. Well, I heard of Hiles Anderson because Tommy Sue, when I was in ninth grade, 1976, told me about it. But I ran into it again when I got saved at age 19, 1981, just after graduating from high school. And I began to look for a Baptist church to attend. One of my friends was an aspiring, he's 19, he was my age, but he was an aspiring evangelist. He wanted to be on the circuit, evangelistic circuit, going from church to church, kind of setting up your tent and holding revival meetings from town to town. So I had this friend who aspired to do that. And he began attending a church in Dearborn Heights, a Baptist church that was affiliated. The pastor was a fan of Jack Hiles. I didn't have any Baptist background other than the high school I went to. He invited me to come. I started going to that church. And I spent about three and a half, four years there. And during that time, I heard some crazy notions, but I was Pentecostal. I was already crazy. So crazy looks normal when you're already crazy. So really, I didn't have much discernment is what I'm saying. So I'm, I'm listening and I'm hearing, and I heard about Hiles a lot. 
And I heard this pastor say things like, you don't make decisions without consulting with a pastor. He's saying that. I'm so dumb. Sure, it makes sense to me. He would say things like, if God is going to deal with somebody in the church, who is he going to deal with first? The pastor. If God wants something to be done, who is he going to make it known to first? The pastor. And we're dumb sheep just sitting there going, well, yeah, of course. And so God reveals things to the pastor and he makes them known to the rest of us. And so I'm hearing this sort of thing. And my friend is preparing himself to be an evangelist out on the circuit. And I remember being over at his house and him practicing his sermons. And he would be in the mirror and he would practice his sermons so that he could have gestures and cough the same way Jack Hiles did. And the same way Curtis Hudson did, another one of these guys. And, on it, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm a crazy Pentecostal, but still, this is a little weird. So I'm starting to get just the, the weird tingle. But I still don't know what to do. And then God in his good providence brought Kimmy into my life. And Kimmy had never been crazy. <laughs> till she lost her mind and married me. <laughs> So she knew crazy when she saw it. This is the truth. She starts attending the church and, with me, and she's nudging me going, no, something's wrong. And over time, we start talking. God's maturing me. I'm developing some discernment in large part because of her discernment. And finally, I had to go to the pastor, and, and we, we left there. Thank the Lord. That church is defunct now thank the Lord. Uh, but my friend has been an evangelist for low these 30 years. He is on the board of something called the Sword of the Lord. Anybody know what that is? The Sword of the Lord is, was and is a publication that Hiles was a featured guy. He was a the Sword of the Lord regional and national conferences. He would be the featured speaker so it promoted him and guys like him. I was best man in John's wedding. And John and I had to part ways as young men because of the direction he was going and God in his grace leading me away from that. But as a result of all of that, I've been able to follow a little bit what goes on with it. And John has continued to do gestures like Jack Hiles. And he's been wildly successful in terms of a full itinerary every year, as I say, on the board of the sword of the Lord. But Hiles Anderson, organs like the sword of the Lord, First Baptist of Hammond, have spawned all kinds of little Jack Hiles around the country. Extremely dictatorial, authoritarian, legalistic, man-centered. Everybody get the idea? So Jack would teach his congregation, his just blindly following congregation of 15,000 people. You say, how can you get 15,000 people? Hey, have you ever watched Joel Osteen? I mean, people are so stinking gullible, aren't they? But he would teach his congregation. If you didn't see it, it didn't happen no matter how much evidence there was to the contrary. You know where we're going with this? 
you didn't see it, it didn't happen. Uh, if evidence means anything, Jack Hiles had a long-term affair with his secretary. And it came to light in the late 80s. And loyalty to Hiles became the issue for all of these people that he had spawned and these churches pastored by his protégés and these evangelists. There were guys in 1989 who showed up at Hiles Pastor School. That's what they called it, an annual three-day affair where he purported to teach pastors how to be pastors. It was really he's teaching guys how to be showmen like he was. These guys showed up with buttons on that said 100% Hiles. No matter what the evidence, we support Hiles. And Hiles remained the pastor of that church till 2001 in his death. Now, I've got two minutes left, and I'll continue next week. Well, he's been there for decades. He's established that kind of cultish approach. The college has put out hundreds of pastors, some of them starting their own colleges. But who's going to take over? Guess who takes over? His son-in-law. His son-in-law is a guy named Jack Scop. And Jack Scop uh, was just in court this past week, having pastored the church for the last 11 years, just this past week. He was in court, having pled guilty to taking a minor over state lines for sexual intent. I have seen, and you can look up on YouTube if you have the stomach for it, Jack Scop and his sermons on YouTube. You cannot watch this guy preach and come away thinking, if, you have, if, you're, if you're not crazy, you cannot watch that and come away with any other conclusion than there's something wrong with this guy. The sexual perversion that he has, not just in his sermons, but in his written materials is just right there to see. And yet you've got thousands of people listening to him. And what a shock that this guy's involved in some kind of sexual perversion. The church now has no pastor. They're trying to, they have an interim, they're trying to, trying to rebuild. We'll see what happens. For my part, I would love to see it close. And I would love to see the college close. But what does that have to do with you and me? If anybody walks into one of those hundreds, thousands of churches, not just out there, but some of them around here, I'm going to show you on the screen next week a website that just lists Baptist churches. And some of those Baptist, many of those Baptist churches on this directory, list themselves as Hiles churches. This, and it's just a Michigan directory. So one of the reasons that I am concerned about how we are perceived is because just like with the term fundamentalist, there have been people who have badly co-opted the term Baptist. And Hiles and his spawn are chief among them. So I will continue 
next week, I, and, I, and I will apologize. It's sordid. It's ugly. Uh, perverted teachings sexually. A guy, the son-in-law of this pastor who himself was sexually immoral and, and biblically aberrant. And then his son-in-law is now in court. And I'll just tell you some other things next week and then I'll shut up about it with the sordid stuff. But just, it actually gets worse. If that's possible, but it does. But I'll spend some time telling you that next week. And then over the next two weeks, try to wrap it up, okay? All right. Let's ask the Lord to grant us safety this week until we come back next. Father, our hearts are heavy because of what has been done with your work in your name by those that the great apostle described as really looking after their own appetites and their own selfish ambitions. It's happened for decades, and it has affected thousands of people. It has ruined families. It's all been done in the name of Christ, and it has been done using the good name Baptist. And uh, Lord, our, we grieve because of the blasphemy. We grieve because of the hurt. We ask you in light of that to grant us wisdom, Lord as we seek to be true light and darkness in the community to which you have called us and, and beyond. And uh, help us this week, Lord, to be sobered by what we have heard, and what we're having, what we're forced to think about at this point. Um, but help us to not dwell only on the negative. Help us to remember that as the darkness deepens, the light shines all the greater. And we thank you that you allow us to be your light in your world. And help us to be that this week. And help us to be that in the weeks and months and years ahead as we settle into the ministry center that you've provided for us. We want to be most effective in reaching people for you, proclaiming your word without compromise. Help us to do that this week and bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.